0: I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to com slash schools to get started. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com, or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the QA podcast. So every now and then, I take questions that I get through social media and through my Substack chats, and I turn them into conversations that we can start here. Um, I want to talk directly to you and hopefully add some advice to the mix, but also add some questions and have you continue thinking about additional things that would be helpful to think about when we're raising and teaching neurodivergent kids and teens. So if you are curious about how to submit a question, the best way is if you become a paid subscriber on Substack, you will have access to the chats feature. And every Friday you can ask me questions there and I respond personally. So sometimes I can respond and answer your questions. Sometimes it's a bigger question and I will decide to cover it on a podcast. Either way, um, I would love to hear what's on your mind when you are teaching and parenting all of our awesome neurodivergent kids. So today we are going to dive into three hot topics that I often hear about. The first is middle school homework. So a few weeks ago, I featured on the blog how I feel about homework and how I feel like our young children in elementary school should be playing and connecting with family. And closer to fourth and fifth grade is usually around the time it happens. As you know, I don't like to talk about ages or grades. I like to talk about when kids are developmentally ready for things. But when your child starts to get a little bit more independent, with their schoolwork, a little bit more aware of listening to what the teacher's asking them to learn and wanting to practice it later. These are all things that will evolve out of executive functioning skills and not necessarily academic skills. So keep that in mind when you are watching your child grow and learn and become more responsible for their own learning. Middle school is its own beast. And the reason I say this is, Even before we introduced Chromebooks to all of our lives, even before the pandemic, when online learning became such a thing, middle school is a time of development where children are not yet teens, and they're not quite kids anymore either. And that's why we have their own word. They're tweens, right? Right. But there is some variability on the low end of this, around 9 or 10, and the high end of this, around 13, 14, where kids can still act younger or kids can be ready for stuff in fifth grade. And we have to really know our kid. And we really have to know the executive functioning skills of our kid. This is why I always come back to homework not being about your mastery of reading, writing, and math. It's you really, really comes down to independence with executive functioning. So a common question I get is how would I advise middle school parents who are having a hard time getting their child started with homework? And so if you're having a hard time getting your child started, we need to first start asking questions about structure and routine. So is your child even remembering that they need to do homework? Are they coming home and they're spent from the day and they've left it all on the field in the classroom and they're done? If that's the case and we're starting with a tired child, We need to think about how we can structure this in a way that optimizes when do they have energy? Could we ask teachers to give us work for over the weekend and we have a routine of Saturday morning for homework? Is there a time that is later in the week and not Wednesday or Thursday evening where no one is firing on all cylinders and we especially are more overly irritated in the evening? So think about fatigue, think about time of day, and pick times that you think your child will be most successful. Many children, even in middle school, need reduced tasks or chunked tasks, and things like projects and group work begin to become a new beast in middle school, and we have to start navigating these online platforms. Now, this is an evolving situation, This is a moving target, and I don't like online platforms right with the rest of you. (laughs) The reason that I don't love them is because in middle school, teachers use them. I know that they are helpful for teachers, but the kids do not tell us where everything is. They may not even know where everything is. So the teacher may tell them something, the child may or may not remember, and then we don't know where to find it when our child doesn't know where it is. Back in the day before technology, we would maybe call a friend on the phone and figure out what the assignment was. So this is what gets tricky because even if we know another classmate in that class, that parent may not know where to find the assignment. So this is where parent-teacher consultation and communication really comes in handy. Develop a relationship with your child's teacher so that you can be your child's guide Middle school is a time where sometimes your child may be emailing a teacher and you're coaching them on what to email the teacher to ask about. Sometimes they're not ready for that independence or even to be the one that drafts the email. So you can draft the email, but you're copying them on the email or they're sitting with you while you draft the email so you can start teaching them, hey, you don't know what to do for homework? This is how we solve that problem. So we have to think about the time of day We have to think about the structure and the routine around our child, and then we need to figure out how can we teach them to problem solve when they don't have the thing. They don't know what to do. They don't know when the test is. They don't know when the quiz is. They don't have the materials to study. The other thing I will say is that our kids often forget their materials, or they forget where to find their materials, and many of them get this illusion in middle school that because everything is digitized, I don't have to write it down. It's in the portal. It's in Google Classroom. It's in Canvas, wherever it is. And that might be true once they get to high school and they don't have to write it down because they know where to find it. But often in middle school, they don't know where to find their stuff. So I will often recommend, and I went through this with my oldest, and I will often recommend that We use technology to know when things are due, like all those online platforms to know when they are due, and then still teaching our child how to use a paper agenda to plan out when or how or what they're going to do to get to that due date. So it might be studying. It might be a project. It might be that they have three things due on Friday and we need to space them out, So if you can sit down with your child on Monday and look at what's due and then help them plan it out on an agenda, you are teaching them executive functioning skills. So if you're met with resistance at homework, I hope some of these strategies have been helpful, especially at middle school where the expectations go up rapidly, yet our kids' skills are very much still fifth and sixth grade levels, even though the work has gone up. So Just think about where your kid is in terms of handling this independently, and it's okay to support them during this time. We want to be supporting them, or if we think that they can do it, stepping back and letting them fail a little bit if we think they're ready to handle that disappointment, and then trying again. If they can self-correct after a failure, that means that they can do it. If they can't self-correct and they get self-defeating and have negative self-talk, it might mean there's a skill weakness there. I wanna say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdoctoremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremilycom tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to with slash tracker to get started. Okay, so next question has to do with dinner time. I get this question so much. I know all of you would really love for your children to sit at the table at dinner time. I know. I'm a parent too. I get it. This is one of the biggest ones, probably along with making your bed, that I often will tell parents let's step back our expectations and start with, okay, is my kid eating? (laughs) Or is my kid sleeping? And then once we get these routines down, and we know our child is taking care of themselves, and they're eating and sleeping, then we can work on them taking care of their space or being able to control their bodies in these spaces. And we'll get into that with the third question, which has to do with chores. But let's start with the table. So I got this question recently. My seven-year-old with ADHD finds it hard to stay seated. How can I tell if they're actually not able to sit at the dinner table or if they're able to control it? And this goes back to a featured blog I had a few weeks ago that is, how do I know when it's their disability and when it's not? So the bottom line here is, It doesn't really matter if it's their disability or when it's not. What matters is their skill at that time of day. So it's very possible that your child can sit in their seat all day long at school and be completely out of stamina by the time they hit the dinner table, and it's very hard for them to sit. There are many kids that need flexible seating at school, and if they need flexible seating at school, they probably need to wiggle their bodies or stand while they eat at home, this is some kids can be grazers and they can eat like within a certain time frame. So you can flex how you do dinner with the ultimate goal, obviously, of everyone being able to sit and eat together. But many families are flexible on how they do this with the goal of, is my child eating? There are many children I work with who are not able to eat and have a conversation at the same time. So for instance, if you try to converse with them, they will stop eating to spend all of their attention talking to you. And then they forget to eat and you have to stop talking and then encourage them to eat. So if that's happening, think about your child's ability to eat and shift to social interaction and then shift back to eating. And then the, The overlay on top of that is managing the nuances of manners around that. So it's a lot to ask a neurodivergent child to do. And these are all evolving skills that the first thing you want to be sure you focus on is just, is my child eating and growing and thriving? And then if you're curious, if your child cannot sit at the table or is able but is too tired, talk with your child's teacher about what they look like at their optimal time of day. What do they look like in the cafeteria? What do they look like when they're learning something or when they're eating snack in the classroom? If they can't sit still then, they probably are struggling developmentally to sit still in the evening because they will have less energy then. If they can sit and attend to eat at the table at school, That could mean that they're out of stamina doing that. It could also mean they just need a little bit more structure and support or flexibility saying, this is time to eat, although you're allowed to move your body around. So we want to think about, are we getting into power struggles? Are we asking our kids to talk too much and be polite? There are many kids that really can't sit and eat at the table unless they do it quietly, because they struggle with adding the social load to that dynamic. So just some things to think about when you are thinking about dinner time with your neurodivergent child. And again, it doesn't really matter if it's a part of their ADHD or not. I mean, it probably is. They are they need to move more, they're impulsive. But the are they able to control it part, there's no yes or no question to that. It really has to do with their stamina, and their fatigue, and if they're able to eat and talk at the same time, or eat and keep their body still at the same time. All right, for our final question, I often get the question, how can I get my neurodivergent kid to do chores? So this is something I talk to lots of kids and teens about because it involves also intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So many of us, Many of us are not intrinsically motivated to clean. It's not a fun thing to do, kind of like we're not intrinsically motivated to learn about something that's not interesting to us. But are we motivated to have a clean space? Does it feel satisfying to be able to find our things when we need to? All of these external motivators, or what I would call natural rewards, so they naturally occur when we have a clean space or we keep up with taking care of our space, they are all delayed gratification. So we have to come back to executive functioning again. So if a child is struggling to see the purpose or the relevancy of a chore, we need to step back and think about how are we modeling this as a family So one thing that I start with when I'm teaching kids about taking care of things and the importance and and how it's relevant to take care of things, I try to help kids understand first what speaks to them. Do they have an interest in taking care of animals? Do they have an interest in taking care of their toys? There are certain things that they take care of, and we want to make sure first that they understand the importance of caring for things. Secondly, we start with the thing that's most obvious and right there and personal to them, their own body. So, if we require a child to do all the things, take care of themselves in terms of hygiene, and then take care of their own belongings and all of their space, and we're requiring them to do all of those things across the board, and you're seeing that they're not following through or not remembering a lot of things, try breaking it down to, okay. You are responsible for your own body. That means you're responsible for going to the bathroom. You're responsible for eating. You're responsible for what you put on your body in terms of clothing, getting yourself ready and dressed and feeling proud of that. You're responsible for brushing hair and brushing teeth. Once a child has mastered taking care of their own body, then you can scaffold on top of that, okay, now we want to make sure you're taking care of your belongings, So things in your room, things that are, it could be a space, like a location, like your room or the playroom. It could also be certain topics. So it could be your items related to school, your items related to play. There might be certain things that are their favorite that they take care of. And there may be things that they lose a lot. And so we wanna have strategies like a drop spot where if there's something very important that that thing lives in that space. And when it's not in that space, then we have to look for it together and return it to that space. And this is very frustrating for kids with ADHD because they often lose their things because they set them down and walk away and then they've completely disconnected from when they did that. So we want to be as encouraging as possible, even though I know it is frustrating for your child to lose their things all the time. But part of taking care of their belongings is having structure, a drop spot for it, a place that it always goes Sometimes this means that we plug things in to charge at night. Sometimes this means we set our shoes out in the in the place where we need them right before the night before. So teaching these routines about having our things and taking care of our belongings. And then when you have a moment where a child has you know, gotten messy with something or something has broken, you can work together because it's a family value to take care of our things. So you can work together to clean something up so that they don't feel so alone in making a mess and having to clean it up. You can say, I get it. This is too big of a job. So let's clean this up together because it's important for us to take care of our belongings. And then the third layer to this is taking care of that shared space around them. So once they've mastered taking care of their things, we can hopefully motivate them to take care of the space around them. All of these layers are going to naturally lead into doing chores or jobs or having family responsibilities. And we cannot expect our children to have responsibilities if they don't also see us having responsibilities. So there may be jobs that kids are not doing, but grownups do, but point it out to them, saying, we clean up the kitchen every single night so it's nice and clean, and it's so nice to come down to a clean kitchen in the morning. So make that point to them. So you might have structure around chores, you might have visuals around chores, you might need reminders and all kinds of executive functioning supports. But even when all of those are in place, I've had families that say, my kid just doesn't want to do chores. And so sometimes it is a family-wide systemic framework shift that needs to happen of we all help out because we share the space together. We all take care of our own bodies. We all take care of our own belongings. And then we all divide up these jobs to help our house stay healthy and organized enough for us to find things and to feel comfortable. So I hope these answers or more questions to your questions have been helpful today. Again, if you want to engage with me on Substack chat every Friday, you can go to learnwithdremily.substack.com where I host my blog and there is a chat feature for paid subscribers to interact with me every Friday. Um, and if this has been helpful, just share it with other parents and teachers who are raising and teaching neurodivergent kids. And I will see y'all next time. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdrimily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.